you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. Our passage was read a moment ago. I realized throughout lunch last week that uh, I never actually told you who I was. (laughs) When everybody kept asking me what my name was. I'm Chris Davis, uh, one of four pastors at Grace Baptist Church in Hartsville, Tennessee. It's uh, good to be back with you again. It's a privilege to stand, perhaps the greatest privilege that any mortal man could receive is to, to speak of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray once more. Father, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, Let my name be forgotten and remembered on the earth no more. That the name of Jesus Christ might fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Can these, can these dead bones live, O oh Lord? Only you know. And yet I would pray that the Spirit would hover in our midst and bring a redemption from on high, I pray. Amen. I haven't read what I would consider lots of biographies over the years. I have read some And of the ones that I've read, some stood out more than others. Two specifically come to my mind. And the reasons they still stand out to me after all this time is because at some point during both the books, one of them was an audio book, I'll admit. But at some point in both books, I had to stop and remind myself that to remind myself that I don't really know these people. I remember in the story, uh, a team of rivals, I believe it was called, a biography on Abraham Lincoln, having to pull over on the side of the road and fighting back the tears, say, Chris, you do not know this guy. And when the book was over, I remember getting in my van over the next couple of days and just Going, wanting to go and hit the play button so that I could pick right back up and realize you've turned them back into the library. And I felt like I had lost an old friend. The other one would be, would be much less impressive to you. Uh, upon finishing a biography of Tiger Woods and just feeling like I wanted to go hang out with him some more. I wanted to call him. 
And again, having to remind myself, he does, you don't know him. He doesn't know you. Over the past few years, I've walked with Jesus through the book of the Gospel of Mark. And I've experienced those same types of feelings, seeing who he is and seeing what he does and has done. It creates a longing and it gives birth to desires, deep desires. And how satisfying it has been to be able to sit down, to sit myself down, even as I sit you down today and be able to tell us. That the man in this book of whom we read, you can in fact know him. In fact, these things were written for the very purpose that you would know him. And not just know about him, but really and truly know him. These stories today reveal his heart to know us. They reveal his heart to be known by us. Our stories are related to the previous two stories and that it continues to reveal the matchless power of Jesus Christ. It continues to proclaim that Jesus can do what no one else can do. Jesus can do what is impossible for everyone else to do. He can silence the hurricane. He can calm the angry sea. He can subdue the most hostile evil spirits. Jesus is so strong and so mighty, there is nothing He cannot do. And then, in this story, Mark does something different. He goes further, if you will. While this story continues this theme of Jesus' unmatched power, it also becomes an invitation to us. An invitation and instructions for you and for me to come to Jesus And to share in this power. An invitation to come and be participants in this power. And in this story, through two characters, Mark instructs us on the one thing that is necessary to come. The one thing that brings us to fall down at His feet. The one thing that unites us to Jesus Christ and unleashes this power to work in our lives. In this story, Mark makes it clear that faith is the way to Jesus. The stage has been set over the previous stories and now Mark tells us this story in order to say, will you follow the examples of what you've seen here? Will you, will you come? Will you believe? Of all the Christian graces, none are so frequently mentioned in the New Testament as faith. And none is so highly commended. Hope brings an eager expectation of good things to come. Love brings a warm and willing heart. But faith brings an empty hand. Faith receives everything. Faith can give nothing in return. No grace is so important to the Christian soul 
By faith we begin. By faith we live. By faith we stand. By faith we walk. By faith we overcome. By faith we have peace. By faith we enter into rest. And because this faith is so vital, because it is so necessary, there are many counterfeits. There are many imitations and fakes and forgeries. False faith looks similar to the real thing, but it's phony nonetheless. False faith says the same things as true faith, but it lacks life. False faith can even look like the real thing, but it lacks power. There are many assaults by the enemy on true faith. Assaults that attempt to weaken true faith, even to destroy true faith if it were possible. And there are many tests to true faith. Tests given by God that reveal true faith and refine true faith and strengthen true faith and increase true faith. And we see all these things in this story. Three things about true faith that I want us to see as we walk through this story together. Three things. The first one is that true faith is a response to a great need. The second thing is that true faith endures many tests. The third thing is that true faith receives the victory. Maybe you noticed as this story was being read a moment ago, that it's made up of two stories. This is the writing style that Mark frequently uses. He begins a story, and in the middle of it, he tells a different story before coming back to finish the original story. He does it time and time again, and the two stories paired together, they're paired together because they mean more together than you could see if they were separated. When you read one story in light of the other story, the glory shines brighter. Mark begins both stories in our passage by emphasizing the greatness of the crowds around Jesus. They're waiting on him wherever he goes. And as always, the emphasis on the crowds serve an important person and a purpose in the passage. The first person that we're introduced to is a man named Jairus, a man with a name. I point this out to you because in the gospel, in this gospel, needy people don't have names. Have you noticed it? Perhaps you've noticed that as you've read through the book. We have the leper, we have the paralytic, we have the man with the withered hand, we have the man with the demon. And in the coming stories, we're going to have more no-named people. But this is the first person with a name. Near the end of the book, we'll have another, but the fact that, Jesus, that Mark tells us that this man has a name is important. Not only does he have a name, he also has a position. He's the ruler of the synagogue. This too is different from the previous stories. The one coming to Jesus is identified as a possessor of social and religious power. He's the one, he's the most influential and one of the most respected members of the community. He's clearly a man of high standing. 
He's the owner of a many-roomed house with sufficient means and importance enough to attract a large group of mourners when suffering touches his family. Religious VIPs like Jairus are usually, in Mark's story, the unpleasant enemies of Jesus. And the synagogues are usually the source of hostility. But it's not so with Jairus. Amid the great crowd, Jairus did something that would have been unthinkable to the religious elites that we've encountered so far in this gospel. He comes and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. Jairus shows a striking disregard for his own social rank. He does not even send a servant. He himself comes to Jesus. And despite the presence of a very large crowd, he falls down at Jesus' feet. He assumes this posture of, of humility before Jesus. No better than the unclean leper. No better than the man who was possessed by a demon. We're told the synagogue ruler falls down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little girl, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well again and live. Though he was a man of position, the power of sickness and the threat of death had reduced him to a position of powerlessness. To the position of neediness. This is a desperate father whose little girl is on the brink of death. All of a sudden, his position means nothing. His social standing means nothing when compared to the well-being of his little girl. Notice he doesn't just say my daughter. He says my little daughter. This is a, uh, this is a word of endearment. A word of, of, tem- of tenderness and warmth. Daughter becomes my little sweetheart. My honey. My darling. My, my little baby girl. This is a word of affection and, and value. I have a, a daughter named Susanna, and I call her my little Susie girl. Imagine the heart of a father at a time like this. Imagine what desperation he must feel, what heartache he must be experiencing, and yet at such a serious time to leave the side of his dying little daughter to go and seek help from Jesus. And we're told that Jesus went with him. I would tell you that this is a sign of true faith because true faith is a response to a great need. They're headed to see his daughter. And without a moment to spare, Jesus decides to spare a moment. Because there's another needy person in the crowd. Among the swarm of people jostling all about Jesus, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Who had suffered much 
We're told in verse 26, under the physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. It says she had suffered much. Not just under the disease, but under people trying to cure her of the disease. And her body was still broken. But now her bank account is empty too. She's worse off than before. She's still sick. And now she's poor and she's hopeless. For 12 years she went to the people who were regarded as the only ones who could do anything about this. But now she's run out of hope. She's run out of money. And people are showing her no mercy at all. She's gone from bad to worse. And that's not all. She was even worse than off than that. For the past 12 years, this woman would have been considered unclean. In the Old Testament, a woman was considered unclean during her menstrual cycle, during her flow of blood. This woman was unclean not for just that time of the month, but for every single day of every week of every month, of every year, for 12 years. She was regarded as an outcast. If she ever touched something or someone, it too would be unclean. So not only was she suffering physically and financially, but this had social and emotional religious ramifications as well. In fact, in verse 29, Mark describes her condition with a graphic Greek word that means a whip or a scourge or torment. It's a word that combines physical suffering with shame. It's something akin to a a public punishment. And it wasn't just physical ailments that accompanied this bleeding for 12 years, nor was it just poverty. Nor was it just loneliness. There was shamefulness. And we're told in verse 28 why she was in the crowd. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. This woman also is a sign of true faith. Because true faith is a response to a great need. We see it in both stories. They're both in great need. They're both powerless to help themselves. They both have no one to turn to except Jesus. So let me ask you for a moment. Have you ever felt such a condition? Have you ever experienced the feeling of such neediness? Have you ever been confronted with the evil that lurks within your heart? Have you ever come to the conclusion that left to yourself, you will surely perish and that your only hope of salvation, your only hope of change is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ? I need you to hear this today. 
Because this is the only way that true faith is revealed. All other hopes must be abandoned. In faith, we come believing that He alone will be our salvation. All of our eggs are put in this one basket. There's no hope anywhere else. True faith places no hope of mercy based on His own righteousness or worthiness or His own loveliness. His only hope is based upon God's graciousness. True faith in Christ throws off all the garbage of anything else we might be tempted to trust in. True faith does not come as a good man or as a mighty man. True faith comes as needy and helpless sinners. Worldly positions and accolades and good works and reputations and intelligence and wealth, they do not matter. True faith comes to Christ as needy beggars. Neither male, neither a male with a name that the world recognizes or a female with no name to speak of. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you live in a mansion or in a manufactured home. It doesn't matter if you're the landlord or the tenant. All that matters is that you see your need for Jesus Christ and you see that He is all that you need. This is how true faith is revealed. The second thing I want us to see is that true faith endures many tests. In verse 27, we're told that she had heard the reports about Jesus. And she came up behind them in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, here's the issue. She had heard about Jesus. She had heard what he was able to do. And yet the problem remained that under the Old Testament law, she was an unclean person. Anything or anybody she touched would be contaminated. What if she, an unclean person, was recognized in the crowd? Would the crowd turn into an angry mob? What if she, an unclean person, was caught touching Jesus? How would he respond to her? How would someone like him treat her? She knows he has great power, but from her experience in this world... Great power greatly corrupts. But the woman does the one important thing that disciples do. She acts. In Mark's gospel, to act on what one hears about Jesus is the sign of a true apostle, a disciple, a true disciple. And that's what this woman does. It's she heard, she came, and she touched. In striking contrast to her dire condition, as it was described in verse 25, Mark describes the results of her action in verse 29 like this. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she knew in her body that she had been healed from her curse. Oh, how sweet it is 
to be healed. But even more so, to know that you're healed. To have the assurances to walk on earth with heaven in your bosom. To know that you're healed is to have assurance. To have assurance is to have heaven on earth. Twelve years of affliction and frustration are all resolved in one momentary touch. Now it's important to see something here. In studying this Gospel of Mark, we see time and again that being in the crowd that follows Jesus and having true faith in Jesus are not the same things. Of all of Mark's faith stories, this one emphasizes most distinctly the true disciple and those following in the crowd. Many in the crowd were jostling against Jesus. Many were bumping into Him and making physical contact. But there was only one touch of faith. There was only one touch that caused power to flow out of His body. Many people followed from curiosity and they derived no benefit from Him. One and only one followed under a deep sense of her need and of the Savior's power to relieve her. And that one, that one, received a mighty blessing. Because true faith made the difference. We see the same thing going on in the church at the present day. Many people attend Sunday worship. Many sing songs. Many listen to sermons. Many come to the table. But of all these worshipers, how many really obtain anything from Christ? Many here today know the form of godliness, but how many experience the power There are just a few here and there who touch Christ by faith and go home in peace. I ask you, do you know this touch? Have you experienced this touch? Not only did the woman know immediately that she had been healed, but at that same moment, Jesus, it says, knew within himself that power had gone out of him. Jesus, it said in verse 30, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now when she thought she was in the clear, just when she thought she was in the clear, the testing of her faith continues. The disciples are oblivious to what's just happened. Notice from how the disciples respond to his question, who touched my garments? From their response, it seemed as though they think that's a dumb question. I mean, the crowd is pressing in all around you, and yet you say, who has touched me? But Jesus wouldn't give up. He insisted on knowing, who touched me? Who touched me? The Greek verb implies that he just kept looking to see who had done this. I mean, 
What are the chances of finding the person who had touched him in such a large crowd? But the persistence of Jesus in seeking who touched him rivals that of the woman who's seeking to touch him. She wants a cure. She wants something from Jesus. She wants to touch him from behind and and just slip away unnoticed. But Jesus is seeking someone. Jesus wants the woman to know him. Jesus is desiring a personal encounter with this woman. He isn't content to merely give us things. He wants to give Himself to us. And knowing in the kingdom of God, the disciple isn't simply the person who gets their needs met. Being a disciple is about being in the presence of Jesus. Discipleship is about being known by Jesus. It's about following Him. Therefore, He doesn't give up until He finds the one He's looking for. But in verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Mark's determined to get a point across in these stories. This is the third consecutive story where some needy people fall at the feet of Jesus. I think it's Mark's way of telling us that these Weak and foolish people are let in on the secret that one day will be disclosed to all of creation. And then everyone will join these weak people bowing the knee to the God-man, Jesus Christ. In fear and trembling, she fell before Him and told Him the whole truth. Says she left nothing out. She told Him the whole truth. I think she knew it would have, would have, wouldn't have done no good to hold anything back. She told him about her suffering. She told him about the 12 years of bleeding, about her futile attempts of doctors, about her hopes, about her fears, about what happened when she was touched. She told him everything. She laid all of her cards on the table. And this man knows exactly what such a trembling And fearful person needs to hear. Jesus said. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This man. Is stronger. Than demons. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than death. His power is infinite. But what is really beautiful, what makes this infinite power good news to sinners, is that His mercy and His love are infinite as well. Oh, the gentleness that He shows towards those who come to Him. He will fight with demons and death or disease with an unstoppable force. But how tenderly He treats His people. He called her daughter. Oh, daughter. The only time Jesus ever calls someone His daughter is in this story. 
And as we're reading in Mark chapter 5, we see someone else, someone earlier pleading with Jesus, would you please come and heal my little daughter? The one that I love. And Jesus, in the middle of this story, gets interrupted and takes time to say, hey, I've got to stop for a moment and heal my daughter. She doesn't matter to anybody else. She's like an inconvenience to everybody else. No one else sees her. She doesn't feel connected to anyone else. He says, but she's my daughter. She's with me. I want to defend her. I want to release her from her shame in front of everybody. And I want everybody to hear it. True faith will be tested. But it's for the purpose of refining and strengthening and increasing true faith. And while the woman's test appears to be over, the testing of Jairus' faith is about to be ratcheted up. While this conversation is taking place, imagine what's going on in the mind of Jairus. His daughter is on the brink of death, and Jesus stops to converse with someone who's been sick for 12 years. I'm sure to Jairus this makes no sense. It's absolutely irrational. In fact, consider if something like this happened in one of our emergency rooms today. You rush your child to the emergency room with a life-threatening illness. She's unconscious. Her heartbeat is failing. And when you get there, the doctor says, yes, this is very serious. We need to get to her immediately. Please sit right here. And then he turns to an older woman who's been sitting there and says, Miss Smith, I'll see you now. You say, you'd be like, what? What's wrong with her? And, he sa- and she says, well, well, son, I've been having some hip issue for 12 years and I need to see the doctor. She would be like, can't this wait? My daughter's dying. And he says, well, we'll get to you in a moment. It appears this is what Jesus is doing. Jairus and the disciples must be wondering if Jesus truly understands the seriousness of the situation. Hurry or it will be too late. But brothers and sisters, hear me. Hear me. The one who knows the end from the beginning will not be hurried. Not only does he have all power, he has all knowledge as well. And not only does he have all knowledge, he has all wisdom as well. And just as his arm radiates with immeasurable power, his heart beats with unwavering goodness and love. His grace and his love are compatible with what seems to be so outrageous to you in his delays. Hear me. Jesus is not saying, I will not be hurried even though I love you. He's saying, 
I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on Jesus, you will feel you will struggle to feel loved by him. Because Jesus will not be hurried. And as a result, we often feel exactly like Jairus does in this story. And as Jesus is standing there talking to this woman, Jairus's greatest fear becomes a reality. In verse 35, we're told that while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble? Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. It's at this point that everything intensified. She's gone. Daddy's little girl is dead. And though this interruption was very profitable to the woman with an issue of blood, it cost the life of Jairus' daughter. It appears that hope is lost. Why bother the teacher anymore? Just a bit ago, when Jesus agreed to go with him, things seemed so promising. But now, and it's here that Jesus speaks these powerful words. These life, these life transforming words. Do not fear. Only believe. I do not know the hardship before you today. But hear these words. Do not fear. Only believe. This is the challenge before Jairus. And it's the challenge before everyone who meets Jesus. To believe only in what circumstances allow. Or to believe in the God with whom all things is possible. Only one thing is necessary. Believe. The power of God into salvation is available to those who believe. The only way to be united unto Him who can do what no one else can do is to believe. The only way to experience this power at work in your life is through faith alone. Nothing else will do and everything else will not do. The worst news conceivable was just announced to the Father, this Father. And yet Jesus is able to counter those words with this. Do not fear. Only believe. He's saying, I know you're afraid. 
You think that my delay was death for your daughter and now your, your last desperate hope is gone. But take another look. Believe. The delay and now death is something that calls for faith, not despair. There's still hope. Wait upon me. Watch me. Hope in me. What I am offering can't be conquered by death. Believe that there's something still to be done. The hope I offer lives even in death. Do not fear. Only believe. This was Jairus' test. And true faith receives the victory. Jesus takes an inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John, and they come to Jairus' house, and in verse 38, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And Jesus again asked what appears to be another dumb question. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? It would be like going to a, the funeral home and asking why everybody's crying. He tells them, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, he, he tells them this not because she wasn't dead. She was. He said this because he knew what he was about to wake her up. And for, Je and for Jesus to wake up a dead little girl is, as, is, is, is easier for you than to try to wake up a sleeping little girl. Professional mourners had been called in. Professional criers. The custom of the time was to pay professional mourners to come and to weep at the death of a loved one. One of the first things they teach you in crying school is the difference between a dead person and a sleeping person. Jesus' word caused their crying to turn into laughter. They laughed at it. They laughed the laughter of unbelief. He was a joke to them. But the joke would be on them because Jesus can do what no one else can do. So he clears the room. The only one who remained in there was the father and the mother of the girl along with Peter, James, and John. He took the little girl by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And it says, Immediately, the girl got up and began walking around because she was 12 years of age. Did you notice that? That the woman with the flow of blood had her flow for 12 years, the same length of time that this little girl had been alive. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. What do these stories say to us? Mark, Mark wants his readers to see the power of Jesus. This is obvious. A flow of blood dried up with a touch. And a little girl awake is awakened from the dead. But they both foreshadow something 
greater. One foreshadows a greater cleansing. The other, a greater victory over death. It doesn't matter where you find yourself in this story. It doesn't matter if your neediness is more comparable to the woman, to the woman's circumstances and fears, or to Jairus' circumstances and fears. Both find their salvation and peace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may be here today and fear has gripped you. Your brokenness is revealed in the fear of death or it could be even your feeling of guilty, guilt and shame at the fear of being exposed. How might the crowds treat you if they find out about your moral uncleanness? How about the mocking laughter of unbelief that might be hurled at you? What about the shame from the mental reminders of what you've done in the past? Or what you did this morning? Hear this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood, flood, lose all their guilty stains. The flow of blood made the woman unclean in our story. But in the last story, it is Jesus who becomes a man with a flow of blood so that through His pure and perfect life, He can wash away all your uncleanness and grant you the right to be children of God. Just like the physically unclean people do not have the power to make Jesus, just, just like physically unclean people do not have the power to make Jesus unclean, His cleanness makes them clean. In the same way, His cross is the cross of Jesus Christ true for us today. If we come to Him at the cross where He bled and died, he will, you will see that His cleansing will spread even to you. There is such power in His blood that no sin or no sinner could ever contaminate Him or defile Him. He purifies all that touch Him in faith. So you've heard. You've heard about His power and His willingness to cleanse you. So come to Him. And touch Him. Extend faith and be united to Him. What about the little girl that suffered death? In this story, Jesus overcame death by speaking to death from the outside. And the Gospel ends with Jesus defeating death from the inside. He became the beloved child who died. Jesus defeated death by dying. And through His resurrection, He offers believers a hope that death can never quench. Because of His resurrection, bodily death is but a moment and the soul will never see death. Let me recount to you a story that I came across studying this. A guy said this, I will never forget a conversation that I had with an elder, older woman in Florida. 
She suffered for many years. She loved God. She loved the church. She told me many details of her suffering. When she finished, I asked if I could pray for her, and she said, yes, but let me tell you something first. There are some Christians whose legs are lame, and they've decided to quit asking God to heal their legs so that they can walk. And it's not because they've lost faith. Faith is living a contented life with your lame legs and believing with all of your heart that one day you will see Jesus and you will walk with Jesus and run with Jesus. She says, I've come to experience the same thing with my suffering. There was a time when I used to ask God to heal me. But I'm broken in ways that will not be healed in this life. I'm going to suffer these things until the day I die. But I'm full of hope. I'm full of faith. Because I'm going to see Jesus one day. And then I will be made strong. That is what sustains me. Now pray for me. This is the power Jesus invites us to participate in. And brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus Christ can do what no one else can do. He is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He is the one you need. And today He is close enough. If you will just reach out your hand of faith and touch Him, He will say to you, Son, daughter, your faith has saved you. He tells you today, do not fear, only believe. Today He invites you, arise and walk with me, eat with me, commune with me forever. Would you pray with me? Father, bless the preaching of the gospel to the hearts of your people.